0: Well, good morning, church. If you're going to take your Bibles out with me and turn to the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 34 is where we find ourselves this morning. And if, you're, uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible in the chair that is in front of you. And Genesis 34 is found on page 28 and 29 of that Bible. I encourage you to keep your Bible open or turned on and follow along with us as we Uh, consider God's word together this morning. Everyone there? Say amen if you are. All right. Let me begin with reading to you, to us this morning, Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for a great, as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you become as we are, by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to be ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, "'These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them.' Let us take their daughters as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people. When every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised, will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with a sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Parasites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Friends, this is God's word. And needless to say, this chapter of Genesis is a very dark chapter. When you read it, maybe for the first time, it's shocking because it involves things like deceit and greed and lust and rape and murder on the level of massacre, almost genocide. And there it is. And and as you read Genesis 34, we should notice that not one time, not a single time is God mentioned. You can look. Not one time is God sought after, not one time is God prayed to, not one time is God, no no one comes to God. Now, if you're visiting today, we are really glad you came. And you may wonder what you got yourself into coming to church this morning, and this is the first thing you heard read. Read. So why are we looking at Genesis 34 today? Well, simply put, because it comes after Genesis 33. And we're reading and working our way through the book of Genesis, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We don't, we're not trying to cherry pick the parts that we like and ignore the hard parts. We're trying to go through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice that Paul says, not some, but all scripture, even the hard parts, are profitable, are beneficial, are useful for us. And friends, the fact of the matter is that sometimes life is dark. And so dark texts like this that are inspired by God are a gift to us because they show us the path back into the light, back into the hope out of the darkness where we're in. So if we're going to understand chapter 34, I want us to first of all keep the, the context of the last several chapters in mind. Because whenever you're trying to make sense of the meaning of a text, you want to keep the, the, the context, where we came from, where we're going, in mind. So Jacob, you remember, remember, we've, we've been walking with him for several chapters. Jacob is kind of known for being a trickster. He, he gets through life by making schemes, and he's kind of a con artist. He, he even was known for deceiving his Blind, elderly father, he, he deceives his, his brother in order to get the things that he wants, and he's pretty successful at it. But in order for Jacob to experience the blessing that God had for him, the blessing that God wanted to give to Jacob and his family, Jacob needed to trust God, not himself. So in chapter 32, you'll remember this wrestling match between Jacob and, And God, and in the morning when the sun is rising at the end of the wrestling match, Jacob emerges with a a dislocated hip that left him weak in himself, but strong in the Lord. And having seen God face to face in Genesis 32 and emerged alive, God also changed his name from Jacob, which means the trickster. He changes his name to Yisrael, Israel. Then we come to chapter 33, which we looked at last week. And though Jacob had been at odds and really an enemy of his brother Esau for about 20 years now because of his deceit and schemes and tricks, in chapter 33, they are amazingly reconciled by the sovereign grace of God. I mean, it's awesome. And so all that's left for Jacob is to go back to Bethel as God had commanded him to go, go back to Bethel. And so Jacob and his family could live happily ever after, kind of coast off into the sunset of God's goodness, right? That's what we want to happen. That's what we expect to happen. But it's not what happens. And life is often that way. Friends, instead of obeying God and going to Bethel, Jacob stops in a city called Shechem. Shechem is about a day's journey north of Bethel where God had commanded him to go. So why does Jacob not obey God and keep his vow and go to Bethel like God commands? Why does Jacob settle for partial obedience which we said last week is disobedience when it comes to God. Why did he settle for partial obedience and stop short in Shechem? Well, Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, notes that Shechem offered Jacob the attractions of a compromise. God summoned him to Bethel, but Shechem stood attractively at the crossroads of trade. In other words, Shechem represented the opportunities for him to get rich. Now, Jacob has been a spiritual pilgrim. He's been making his way home for a long time. And being a pilgrim is hard, right? Being a foreigner, an exile, a pilgrim is hard. And I imagine Jacob was tired. He was ready to retire from pilgrimage, buy some land, build a house, call it home, make some money, and relax, because being a spiritual pilgrim is hard. But Hebrews chapter 13 verse 14 reminds every Christian pilgrim, and if you're a Christian, you are a pilgrim, you are an exile. This is not your home. This is not your lasting home. Hebrews thirteen fourteen reminds us, here on earth we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And so in in light of that, instead of retiring from our spiritual pilgrimage, instead of ceasing or pausing our spiritual pilgrimage because we're tired, Hebrews 2 verse 1 says, no, 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 we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. That's kind of the, the tenor or the tone of Genesis 34. Now, You'll remember that in Genesis 17, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, it created or established a, a relationship that was like a marriage. A marriage is, is different than just dating. In a marriage, you make a covenant. You love each other, but you have the covenant promises that, that for better, for worse, and riches and poverty and sickness and health, the death do we part. So when God makes a covenant with Abraham, it, it's like a marriage relationship with God as the husband and, and his people as the bride. There's love and there's commitment. And in this covenant relationship, God is a jealous God. God will not settle for half of our heart any more than a wife will settle for her husband having, giving her half of his heart and then dating other women. You don't do that. But Jacob had settled partial obedience I'll give you my heart but not all of it and so as one writer notes to stir Jacob's heart up to full obedience God allows his spiritual compromises to bear their bitter fruit the consequences of sin that we see in Genesis 34 are ugly they are awful They are sobering. They get our attention. I think that's part of the design in Moses, including these things. They're meant to get our attention. And I want to say up front that we we can't draw a direct line from a particular sin to a particular consequence with Jacob. Nor should we try to do that in our own lives. We should not try to always draw a particular line from a particular sin to a particular consequence. That's above our pay grade. But one of the lessons of this text is that when temptation whispers to us, ah, no one will find out. It won't hurt anyone. Genesis 34 exposes that lie as a lie. Sin is deadly. And sin injures both the sinner and the people around them, including their loved ones. In effect, the bitter fruit that we see in Genesis 34, the consequences of Jacob's partial obedience, is meant to be a loving warning for God's people, both when Moses taught this to the people of Israel and to us today. It's meant to be a loving warning for God's people not to settle for partial obedience. It's meant to be an encouragement for us to press on in our spiritual pilgrimage until we make it all the way home. Church, I want you to hear this. The Lord disciplines those he loves. Not those he hates, not those he despises, not those he puts up with. No, the Lord, like a loving parent, Disciplines those he loves. Mark that in your heart and your mind as we read this text. I pray that as we look at the bitter fruits of sin this morning, I pray, even as Pastor Danny prayed, that we see God's love, that we heed God's warning, and that we run with endurance. The text of Genesis 34 breaks into four scenes. So if you kind of want to kind of put some mental markers together, the first three scenes will show us the consequences of sin when we pause our pilgrimage. And the fourth point points us to God's mercy. First three point us to the the, the bitter fruits, the consequences of sin. The last scene points to God's mercy. So let's look at this first scene. This is verses one through four. Dinah's defilement, scene number one. Dinah's defilement. We're told in verse one that Dinah was the daughter of Leah and she, is the, uh, the, she was born to Jacob. You'll, you'll notice this repetition that we, we know by now that Dinah is Jacob's daughter, but he repeats it about 10 times. Don't forget, reader, this is Jacob's daughter. This is Jacob's daughter. This is Jacob's daughter. This is Jacob. Okay, I got it. This is Jacob's daughter. He's making that link clear. And Leah, you'll remember, is the unloved spouse. And Dinah is the daughter of the unloved spouse, where Rachel is the favored one. So this favoritism is going to begin to bear its bitter fruits in Jacob's family. Well, Dinah, we're told in verse 1, went out to see the women of the land, the women that were living in Shechem. Now, we're not told. Moses does not tell us why she went. We're just not told. Perhaps she was just curious. We're not sure how long they lived there. But, but instead of meeting the women of the land, she meets Shechem, the prince of the land. And we're told, tragically, verse 2, that he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. It is an awful scene. It is a gut-wrenching scene. And the language that Moses uses describes what we would say today as sexual assault or rape. Of Dinah. So here's a woman, made in God's image, with incredible worth and value, who was left humiliated by the prince of Shechem, who was left, we're told in verse five, as defiled. And that word for defiled is a word that describes the unclean. It's a word that that describes what brings or creates the experience of shame because of something that was done to you. Sadly, this sexual assault that happened to Dinah is not just something that's reserved for Genesis 34. It happens today. Statistics show that one in every four women, one in every four, will experience some form of rape or sexual violence during their life. And it's not just the women. It happens to men as well. The numbers are different, but it happens to men as well. And and the statistics that we have are likely lower than what's actually real because many people just don't report what's happened to them because of shame or embarrassment. But it happens way too often, more than it ever should happen. So how does something this wretched, this awful, happen how do we answer for this what's the reason for it well if as a secular worldview explains if we are nothing but molecules and chance the secular worldview does not have an answer for what's wrong with this world we we all know intuitively there's something wrong with this world there's something broken we just we sang about that right do you feel the world is broken we do So what's the answer? Why is the world broken? The the secular worldview that says there is no God, we're just molecules and chance, has no answer for evil in this world. It's just happened. It just is. But, in contrast, the Christian worldview does have an answer. Notice the language in verse two. He saw her, he seized or took her and lay with her. The language that Moses uses in verse two, I think is intentional. It's an echo. It's the same verbs that Moses uses to describe the first sin in Genesis 3.6. When Eve saw the fruit, took the fruit and ate. In the same way, he saw, he seized and he lay with her. In other words, part of what Moses is highlighting for us is that when our first parents believed the lie of Satan, that God is not good, that God cannot be trusted, and when our first parents rejected God as God and put themselves in charge, thinking that they knew better, they thought, they believed the lie that that if they were God, it would improve things, It it would lead them to real life. But it didn't make things better. It only made things worse. Ever since Genesis 3, it's it's, it's the explanation for why we live in a fallen world. And so verse 2 reminds us that, listen, awful things, gut-wrenching things, things that should not happen, things that are difficult to read out loud, happen because of sin. Awful things happen because our first parents doubted the goodness of God, rejected God, and we trust ourselves over against God. After Shechem humiliated Dinah, he turns around, professes his love for her, speaks tenderly to her, and then he proposes marriage to her. Now does that seem a little strange? Does that seem a little twisted to you? I hope it does. He sexually assaults her and then wants to marry her. That's twisted. That's strange. And, and we do well to pause and to note how sin twists and warps God's good gifts. God's design for marriage was crystal clear before sin entered the picture. God's design for marriage is clear in Genesis 2 24 and 25. One man and one woman. It's been clear from the very beginning. One man and one woman. And and first, that man and that woman commit in the covenant, making their vows in the covenant of marriage. Then, after they've made the commitment, then they are to enjoy God's gift of sexual intimacy. Not the other way around. But Shechem twists it around. Listen, when we do God's When we we do marriage and enjoy sex God's way, there is no shame. There's no shame in it. It's a beautiful gift of God that is meant to be enjoyed within marriage. And, And there's beauty within sex in marriage. There's intimacy. There's family. But Shechem was not driven by God's word. Shechem was driven by his desires and his lusts. And he twists things around and makes a disastrous mess. So scene number one is a defiled dinah. Scene number two is a hardened heart. We can, we can see the bitter fruits of pausing our pilgrimage. Scene number two is a hardened heart. And this is verses five through 12. In verses five through 12, Hamor, who is the father of Shechem, he comes and pitches the idea of Dinah marrying his son Shechem. Right? I got an idea. Let's 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 get my son and your daughter married. And he he never mentions what he had done, what Shechem had done to his daughter. In fact, it, it almost seems like there's no there's no sense of guilt or that, that Shechem had done anything wrong. You see the different moral compasses that that these two people groups have. But anyways, he he proposes the idea of marriage, and he sweetens the deal in verse 10, saying, listen, okay, listen, I got this idea. Let's get get these get these young kids married. In verse 10, he sweetens the deal, saying, you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Now listen, God had made a covenant with Abraham, then Isaac, and Jacob, and he had promised at least three things, offspring. Blessing and land. Right? And it's been a long time of waiting. He 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 God had promised him land. And I think one of the things we're meant to note here is that Hamor, the father of Shechem, he uses the same language that God did when God promised Jacob, you shall acquire land in, in the promised land. I'm going to give it to you as a gift. So Part of what Hamor is offering is a shortcut. I don't know how much he knows about what he's offering, but, but Moses' highlights for this is that he's offering a shortcut, a sinful shortcut to get and take what God had promised. In other words, what Hamor is offering Jacob is, you can have the land right now. Let's get these kids married. You can have the land right now. You don't have to wait anymore. Jacob had bought some land already. He had camped out in Shechem. So we know that he's not just passing through. Jacob does not seem bothered. Jacob does not seem motivated to leave Shechem. Nowhere do we see a a, a, conscience, a crisis of conscience for Jacob that I, I need to go to Bethel. He's just kind of okay with where he's at. Even though God commanded him, go to Bethel. I think one of the things we're seeing in this text is that sin, when sin is in our lives and goes unchecked, sin deceives us. Sin hardens our hearts. Now, we're going to see later on in God's law, but even, even already with Abraham and Isaac, it's been clear from the beginning that God's people are not to marry a person who is outside of the community of faith. A, a believer is not to marry an unbeliever. That's true in the Old Testament, it's true in the New Testament. And, and, and remember, the proposal that he's offering here is between a person within the covenant community of God, Dinah, and those who don't believe, who have a different moral compass, who don't worship the same God. So from the very beginning, this, this deal should have been a, a, a no-brainer off. And what's more, let's, let's not forget that the one who's making this offer had assaulted his daughter, who's, by the way, still held a hostage in Shechem's house. She's not home yet. But as appalling as everything is in this negotiation, a hard heart becomes calloused. A hard heart becomes deaf to the voice of God. A hard heart might, not, might, might hear this offer of Shechem that sounds very similar to the offer that God had made and say, what's the difference? And so a hard heart is at risk of spiraling further and further and deeper and deeper into sin. So when Jacob, who by the way, let's not forget, is Dinah's father, when he finds out what happened, how does he respond? Look at verse five. Jacob heard, he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. The word for held his peace means he did nothing. He was silent. If you are the father of a daughter and something this horrific happens your love would not let you sit and hold your peace and do nothing so is jacob's indifference to this disaster is his indifference because dinah was leah's daughter and not rachel's if dinah was rachel's daughter would he have acted differently or was Jacob just more concerned about something else? Is that why he kept his silence? He's trying to protect something else that he cares about. Well, we're going to find out at the end of this chapter. But I want us to note that Jacob displays the signs of a hardened heart. Church, listen, if, if you're a Christian, it's not if a Christian will sin. This side of heaven, this side of glory, you will sin. But it's how you respond to sin when you do. That's what matters. Do you rationalize, excuse, belittle, or tolerate your sin until it, it, it's okay to stay in Shechem and you've, you've seared your conscience and you don't, you have a calloused heart? Or when you, when you have sinned as a Christian, Do you repent? Turn. Go to war against that sin, and by the Spirit of God in you, put that sin to death. It's not if you sin, it's how you and I respond to sin when we do. Scene number three. Deceit and violence. Deceit and violence. This is the last scene that shows us more bitter fruit, and we see this in verses 13 through 30. So, in verse 5, we see Jacob's passivity. But when Jacob's brothers, or when Dinah's brothers find out, they are not passive. These were meant to see a contrast between Jacob's response and Jacob's son's response. They are on opposite ends of the spectrum. In verse 13, the author, Moses, makes an editorial comment about what they're doing to make sure we don't miss their intention. Verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because they had defiled their sister Dinah. So it's not part of the plot, but the, the narrator steps out and says, listen, what they're doing, let me, let, me, let me give you a peek into their heart. They're deceiving. They're deceiving them. Jacob's sons are angry and rightly so. This should have never been, this should have never been something that happened. In fact, um, in verse seven, it says that um, this—they this have done—he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. That's right; they are right to be angry. They are right to be upset. They're right—they are right to want justice for Dinah, right? But the fact that they're deceitful from the beginning shows us in verse thirteen their intentions, and their deceit shows us that the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. They had grown up with Jacob, they had watched their dad over the years deceive and trick and scheme and it looks like dad had rubbed off on them. And so rather than coming to God for justice and for wisdom to know what to do, they take matters into their own hands and they deceive and they lie. Look at verse 14. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. Again, So far, if you pause the story there, so far, so good. As the people of God, they and believers today should not marry an unbeliever. But their concern about these people being uncircumcised does not reflect a desire for evangelization, does not show their heart to introduce the people in Shechem to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, they use circumcision as a tool to incapacitate the men of the city to do them harm. Hamor and Shechem also, they are not interested in Jacob's God. They accept the sign of circumcision because they're motivated by greed. Verse 23, they, they pitch, the, they got to convince the men of Shechem to go through this, right? So verse 23, will not their livestock, their property and all their beasts be ours? That sweetens the deal until they're able to influence all the men in Shechem to be circumcised. And when all the men of city are circumcised, Simeon and Levi see their chance. Verse 25. On the third day, when they, that's the, the men in Shechem who were circumcised, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. Their violence was an unbridled violence. They trampled on the Old Testament principle of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which was meant to ensure proportional justice. They don't care about proportional justice. They want the entire city dead. And so we see their unbridled violence. Look at verse 28. They took Their flocks, and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. All their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, all that was in their houses, and they captured and plundered. This is tough. This is hard. Because as we read this, there's a sense in which their response of anger was appropriate Especially when you see the the contrast between Jacob's passivity. They're like, at least they're angry. Shechem's sexual assault of Dinah was awful. It was awful. Such a thing should never be done, verse 7 says. And justice demands the punishment of Shechem. That is just. But Simeon and Levi's deep hatred of Shechem. And you see it all over the text. Their deep hatred of Shechem led to a blind rage that did not lead to justice. It only led to more and greater injustice. Shechem assaulted Dinah. And in response, Simeon and Levi massacred a city including people who had nothing to do with Shechem's crime. We're told Shechem took Dinah. Well, Simeon and Levi took everything in the city after they took their sword and killed everybody. Friends, God's people are called to be holy. God's people are called to be distinct or different Than a world that does not know God. But in their blind rage, Simeon and Levi became like the one they hated. We also note that circumcision is repeated about six times in the text. Why is that highlighted by Moses in this text? Well, circumcision, we know from Genesis 17, is a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. It was a sign of the covenant that marked off the people of God. These are my people. These are, they are holy. They are separate than the world. And the way that 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 demarcation happens, the way that line is drawn, is through the sign of circumcision. But both the Shechemites and the sons of Jacob empty God's sign of circumcision, of its meaning... And they utilize this religious sign for selfish ends, to get revenge or to get rich. Friends, I think that we're meant to see a similar danger for the church today. Because if circumcision was the Old Testament sign that marked off the people of God, the sign in the new covenant that marks off the people of God is baptism. Baptism symbolizes the line a person has crossed over when they become a Christian. It it, it, it symbolizes, water baptism symbolizes that a person has gone from being outside of Christ, outside of the people of God, now by grace through faith being in Christ, a part of the body of Christ marked off as holy and distinct by the grace of God. And so the boundary line that baptism creates between the church and the world, it's not to say that, hey, we're better than you, holier than thou, far from it. The boundary line is meant to show people a different way to live than the world. The boundary line is meant to show that the world, that they can experience the blessing of knowing God through Christ. And if, you remember, if you remember in Genesis 12, God blessed Abraham and his descendants so that they would be a blessing to the nations. But when they misused the sign of circumcision for selfish purposes, rather than being a blessing to the nations, they massacred the nations and drugged God's name through the mud in the process. Friends, for us today, we need to remember that that's why baptism, church membership, and the Lord's Supper matter. When we we do those things in a biblical way and a loving way, we're using God-given tools to draw a line of distinction. Not to say we're better than thou, holier than thou, but to clarify to the world and to the church, this is what a Christian is. And when we muddy the line, we're not loving anyone. When we misuse that, that tool, those tools, which is meant to clarify, in order to bless, we're not loving anyone. We actually love the church and love the world by using those tools in a, in a, in a godly, biblical way to make that distinction clear so that people know what a christian is and, and how they can be saved. baptism, membership, lord's supper is one of the tools that god uses to both protect the gospel and display the gospel which we cherish. so how does jacob's response to his how does jacob respond to his son's violence? verse 5 when he hears about the news of dinah he does nothing. well how does he respond when he gets the news about their violence? He's been passive, he's been quiet the entire chapter, and when he finally speaks up in verse 30, it's not good. Look at verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, hmm, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household." Notice the pronouns? He does, not he does not mention, hey, what you did was wicked. That violence was unbiblical. It misrepresented God. It was not proportional justice. He doesn't mention that. And he doesn't say anything about his daughter. Instead, it's me, 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 I, I, I. Jacob's concern is how it made him look. You made me stink. That's his concern. That's what he's trying to protect. Not good, Jacob. Not good. I'm tired of the bitter fruits. Are you? Let's turn to God's mercy. Scene number four, God's mercy. We're gonna, look, we're gonna see this in verse 31, and we're gonna dip our toe into the next verse in chapter 35. So if you've been with us following Jacob the last month, following Jacob is like riding a roller coaster. Up and down, up and down. I'm sick, right? Faith, then fear. Obedience, then he blows it. I'm like, I'm I'm ready to be off this roller coaster, right? But I think, when we ask the question, what do we do with Jacob? I, I think that there's a bit of an encouragement here for us because unless, listen, unless you're a perfect Christian, any perfect Christians here? Okay, unless you're a perfect Christian, Genesis 34 has nothing to say to you. If you're a perfect Christian, Genesis 34 has no encouragement for you. But if you're not a perfect Christian, any imperfect Christians here? Okay, then, then this text has some encouragement for us. Because when we look in the mirror and we are honest, Don't you see a bit of Jacob in you? You're a Christian, you love God, but but it's up and down in your life too. You trust him, but then you you, you disobey. You you, you believe, but you fear. You obey, then you disobey. It's up and down. Sanctification, in other words, our growth in godliness in the Christian life is not a coast into the sunset, straight line trajectory, it's up and down. But let's be honest, if you or I were God, dealing with Jacob, I don't know about you, but I'd be fed up with Jacob at this point. I'd fire Jacob. Let's get get somebody else. But as one writer notes, in spite of his continuing failure, Jacob is not stamped rejected and then placed on the shelf. I love that. God is not mentioned in chapter 34, but let's peek ahead. Let's take a peek at chapter 35, verse 1. There, Moses writes, so you can't find God's name in 34. First word in chapter 35, verse 1, God. God, praise God. God said to Jacob, I'm done with you. I'm retiring you and putting you on the shelf. Is that what he says? No. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar to the God who appeared to you and when you fled from your brother Esau. And what does Jacob do? He gets up and finally limps his way from Shechem to, down south to Bethel as he should have in the first place in obedience. But I want us to notice not Jacob, but what that shows us about God. God's not done with Jacob. God's mercy, God's grace abounds. Praise God that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Praise God there is more mercy in God than sin in us. But what about Dinah? What about Dinah? We never hear from her. What about justice for Dinah? Her father failed her. Her brothers failed her. And if we put ourselves in Dinah's shoes, God seems absent in Genesis 34. Silent. But friends, as Psalm 27 reminds us, even if our family abandons us, the Lord cares for us. Hebrews 2, verse 11 reminds us that Jesus, I love this, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brother. Dinah's brothers may fail her, Dinah's dad may fail her, family may have failed her, but Jesus. Our older brother is the God who will not fail Dinah, and he will not fail us. Jesus would come for his people. He would come for the likes of Dinah. And though Dinah may feel shame, humiliation, defilement because of what was done to her, Jesus is not ashamed to call her family. What happens with Dinah? Does she heal? Does she recover? Does she get married one day? I don't know. There's a lot of unanswered questions about Dinah, but no matter how we may struggle with what we read in Genesis 34, mark this down and make no mistake. We are not more just than the God of Genesis 34. That's where this text points us. Chapter 34 ends in verse 31 with a question. Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And what's the answer that's given? There is no answer. It's an unresolved, unanswered question, essentially asking, well, then how should we deal with sin then? And the text shows two different responses. Jacob's passivity was not the answer. But Simeon and Levi's violent massacre of the city was not the answer either. One response obliterates the sinner. The other response treats sin too lightly. So we're left asking, is there a better answer to the problem of sin? Is there a way that treats the awfulness of sin with an appropriate seriousness And yet, still reaches out to redeem the sinner. Is there a better way to deal with sin? Thanks be to God there is. And his name is Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away sin. Friends, the wages of our sin is death. And justice demands that those wages be paid. There's no way around it. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of our sin, your sin and mine, is death and hell. And those wages per justice demand is that those wages must be paid. But instead of other people dying for the sins of their prince Jesus is the king who laid down his life and shed his blood for sinners like Jacob and Simeon and Levi. Sinners like Shechem and Dinah. Sinners like you and me. Friends, we must not become like those who hurt us because of our blind rage. We must be able to overcome evil, not with evil, but overcome evil with good. And we must learn to overcome evil with good, not because we are indifferent to injustice, but because we believe that God cares more about justice than we ever could. And that God cares about justice, and the proof of his care and concern about justice is the cross of Jesus Christ. Romans 12, verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We're not meant to carry around vengeance on our shoulders because we end up being like, becoming like the ones that we hate, that hurt us. And so if a sinner like Shechem does not repent, listen, they will taste the awful wrath of God. And it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. But when a sinner, any sinner, turns to Christ in faith and in repentance, they will find a God welcoming them with open arms in mercy and in love Because on the cross, the demands of justice were satisfied in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in their place. The cross is where justice and mercy meet. So if you're not yet a Christian, how God will receive you in the final judgment depends on what you do with your sin and how you respond to Jesus if you think, well, I'm a pretty good person, and you, try, you decide to go it alone, you will stand before God on the basis of your good works, and you will pay the wages of your sin, which is death. But it doesn't have to be that way. For all who turn from their sin and all who trust in Christ alone, knowing that they're not good enough, if you turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone, you will find not death, but life in Christ. You will find eternal life. So my non-Christian friend, I pray that you turn from your sin today and you trust in Christ alone and you will find a father, your heavenly father, coming to you with open arms. It's the mercy and grace of God. The cross reminds us that God provides justice for the afflicted. But having suffered shame and sorrow himself, on the cross, it reminds us that, that Jesus knows the pain, Jesus knows the pain of injustice and he cares for the afflicted. He cares for the dinas of this world. This is, this, is, this is what we are to tell those who suffered an injustice like Dinah. The cross of Jesus Christ, it may not answer every question that the afflicted has, but what the cross shows us is God's heart and his character. The cross once and for all settles that God is good, that God is just, that God is present, and that God loves. And so as we weep with those who weep in their injustice that they've suffered, it's better for us not to pretend like we have all the answers, because we don't. But it's better for us to point them to the God who is good, who is just, who is present, and who is loving. Friends, it might be that you are a person who, like Dinah, has suffered as a victim of sexual assault. You may know something of the shame or the defilement of what was done to you. Friend, Jesus' suffering on the cross is not just meant to provide you with sympathy. It does. He understands. He's a sympathetic high priest. But on the cross, Jesus also bears our sin and takes our shame. Our defilement. He removes the stains that make us feel defiled. He defeats the enemies that shame us. Jesus destroys the lie. If you've been assaulted this way, Jesus destroys the lie that you're damaged goods and there's no hope for you. Jesus comes to you in the cross and says, child, I've made you clean. You are precious in my sight. So friends, if you have suffered from sexual assault, I encourage you, please talk to a trusted friend, talk to a pastor who will help you look to Christ, who brings this cleansing and this healing. The road to recovery and healing is not something that happens overnight, but God is able to help. And this church will, as best we can, walk alongside you no matter how long it takes. Genesis 34 is a dark chapter in the Bible. But given that life in a fallen world often gets dark, I'm thankful for Genesis 34. I'm thankful that we serve a God who includes difficult and dark texts like this so that he can lead us out of the darkness into his marvelous light and into the hope that is available in him. Let's pray. Father, we we read about this in Romans 8 this morning, that the earth, all creation groans under the curse of sin. We look forward to the day when Christ will come again and he will right every wrong and he will make all things new. We praise you as a God who is, who both upholds the demands of justice that we have failed to keep and those who have sinned against us have failed to keep, that you will, you will pour out vengeance. And vengeance will either be taken by your son on the cross or in the unrepentant sinner. So Father, rather than taking up vengeance in our own hands, we pray that we would trust vengeance to you. We pray that we would see you as good and just and present loving. We pray for those who are suffering the wounds of assault or being wronged or injustice. We pray that your son, our sympathetic high priest, would help and that we would help each other come again and again and again to Jesus. For it's him that we wait for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.